Thanks for joining us on this week's episode, where we continue to discuss the Best Picture nominees from the 10th Academy Awards. I'm Maddie. And I'm Kelsey. Let's find out if the Oscars got it wrong. All right. We're back. We're back with winners. Yay, winners. Good love winners. So yeah, this is our part two of 1937. We did our normal matchups in the last episode, decided winners and losers, talked about the losers last episode, and now it's time for the winners, baby. Yeah, baby. As always, we treat this like a normal episode, so we will go through the winners and decide after each of them, would we have been mad if they won Best Picture if they did not, in fact, win Best Picture? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so our winners, to begin, were our number one seed, A Star is Born. Would you have been mad about A Star is Born winning Best Picture? No. I think I'll agree with you. We'll get into it, but I think no. Okay. Two is Stage Door. Would you have been mad about it? Yes. I'm so mixed about a lot of these. I think I'm a no on that, but we'll talk about it. Number 10 is The Awful Truth. Would you have been mad about it winning? Yes. Same here. Okay. Number four seed, Captain's Courageous. Would you have been mad about it? Yes. I think I'm a no on that too, but I'm Marshall. Okay. So we'll get into that in stage door. And then finally, eight, The Life of Emile Zola. Would you have been mad about it? Or are you mad about it? I guess. Right. This is the actual winner. No, I'm not mad about it. You? Same here. Not mad. Okay. I'm not very mad at all this year, as you'll notice. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That means we have the one double no of The Awful Truth, I believe. So Mm -hmm. we'll start there, then go to our mix, Stage Door and Captain's Courageous, and then A Star is Born and The Life of Emile Zola. The Awful Truth. Do you want to tell me what it's about? Sure. It's pretty brief. It's a slapstick romantic comedy. So we have these two characters who start the movie married. We have Cary Grant and Irene Dunn. And they are sort of happening young people (laughs) at the very beginning of the movie. He is coming back from a trip where it seems like he kind of lied about where he was, but they, <laughs> he's supposed to be coming back from a trip. He gets home. She's not there either. She shows up while he's brought all these people back to their house and she comes in in the middle with a guy and it turns out the two of them have spent the night together. They claim because the car broke down mm-hmm. and so they had to stay in a hotel, but everyone is highly suspicious of this. <laughs> and so it turns into an argument between the two of them where she, of course, also finds out that he wasn't where he said he was. And they're basically just like, we should get divorced because screw you and screw you and I can't trust you and you can't trust me and whatever so they're like all right we're getting divorced is the beginning of the movie so they have 90 days until the divorce is going to become finalized and then of course over the 90 days they might start changing their minds about whether or not they want to get divorced so the, the, the woman ends up meeting a neighbor of hers who's like a much more serious man and is considering the idea of getting together with him, but of course keeps running into Cary Grant because they share a dog. So he does yes. have to keep coming to see the he dog. He has visitation rights with the dog. Well, because they met each other getting the dog. <laughs> this is the origin story of their relationship. So he keeps showing up and, and showing her that the guy she's with is pretty boring and not that interesting compared to Cary Grant. And meanwhile... He is off romancing some sort of rich socialite. And so maybe the two of them are going to get married after this 90 days is up. But he also keeps running into the soon to be ex-wife who 
she is starting to have second thoughts and doesn't like the idea of him being with this woman. So she's like butting herself into it at times. And at one point she pretends to be his drunk sister (laughs) and shows up at the family of the woman that he's supposed to be together with. And is basically like intentionally throwing a wrench and everything. The two of them on the eve of the 90 days being up, she ends up convincing him to go with her to her family's cabin or something. Mm hmm where they are sleeping in two adjoining bedrooms and the door between them keeps opening itself and they are constantly reminded of each other's presence. And then basically they realize that they still want to be together and the end of it is like, they're going to fuck even though they're not married. (laughs) It's a pretty racy ending. It's just a fun little comedy. What did you think of it? I thought that. I thought it was a lot of fun. I mean... Gary Grant is so charming. He's so mm-hmm. funny. He does some great physical comedy yep. in this film. I love, so when they get divorced, she goes to stay with her Aunt Patsy. Obsessed with Aunt Patsy. Aunt Patsy's so cool. Aunt Patsy is here for a good time. Oh, she's the best. You've got to love her. The dog is great. That's Asta, right? From The yes. Thin Man. Yep. Great dog. There's a cat at the end who's also great. Yes, totally. <laughs> It's fun. It's really fun. I think people would like this. You're, you're not going to have a bad time watching The Awful Truth. It's not like, you know, the most substantial thing of all time. It's just a little rom-com. And it's interesting because the behind the scenes of it is Cary Grant hadn't worked with the director before. And he mostly has people improvise, which is like a lot to deal with. I think at first Cary Grant wasn't really into it. But then they all ended up getting along and he was like actually he's a comedy genius and i think was credited with helping hone some of carrie's comedic instincts but it works for a movie where a lot of the scenes they're just sort of improvising their dialogue the dialogue's good they're funny he and irene dunn do more movies together after this and they're really good together i like them a lot i will say if we want to get a little bit into our favorite bits this movie does have one of the funniest things i think i've ever seen in a movie so do the The conflict between Cary Grant, like you were saying, and Irene Dunn is she shows up with this man who's her voice coach that she's been taking voice lessons from. Yes. And so towards the end of the movie, she's trying to get the voice coach to once again explain to Cary Grant that nothing was happening between them. And they're doing that at her apartment. And then Cary Grant shows up and she's like, oh, go hide in the bedroom. He can't know you're here. I'm trying to get back together with him. Yep. And so then she's having this conversation with Cary Grant. He tries to put on his hat to leave. It turns out it's the guy's hat. And he's like, is this hat really small? What happened? And she's like, I don't, I just I don't know. Maybe push it, it back. <laughs> just bought, I've seen it fit before. And she's like, maybe just like push it behind your ear. Anyway. <laughs> and then her new boyfriend shows up and she's like, oh, he he can't know you're here either. And Carrie Grant's like, don't worry, I'll hide in the bedroom <laughs> where the voice coach is hiding. I loved that. And then he goes into the bedroom with the voice coach. He's holding the hat. He hands the hat to the voice coach and then he hits it out of his hand, which was very funny. And then she's having a conversation with the new guy and Aunt Patsy is there, of course. And then Cary Grant and the voice coach get into this fight in the bedroom and you just hear the crashing, right? And they're like, they're doing construction in there. (laughs) Yeah, don't worry about it. It's fine. And then Cary Grant chases the voice coach out of the the apartment he says excuse me as he's running through (laughs) and patsy's like i don't think they rounded second (laughs) and i loved it it was really funny it It was funny too because she's obviously like oh no this is really going to end things with dan but it's like what did dan think was happening yeah i don't know (laughs) 
It is really funny because it's one thing for you to find a man in her bedroom, but then for two, two fighting, fighting men. <laughs> her bedroom is like, what am I supposed to make of this? I think he just sort of takes it as like, she's a lot of drama and I'm not here yeah. for that. Like he wants everything to be very normal and yeah he's very uptight and proper and he's like two men in your bedroom (laughs) i don't know what was happening (laughs) like yeah (laughs) i loved it it really Uh, made me laugh i think that was funny big fan of that scene good slapstick comedy but the whole hat bit was great because they have very similar looking hats and she hides the first hat behind a mirror and they play this game that you've they've introduced earlier with the dog where they hide something and the dog finds it and so he's trying to play the game with the hat the whole time and it's just good i liked it yeah but yeah not a lot more to say it's just a fun time go watch it Mm -hmm. okay that brings us to our mixed ones stage Mm -hmm. door and captain's courageous you want to tell me about stage door sure So Stage Door is, at first, a comedy about this boarding house of all women who want to work on Broadway, and they, you know, some of them are more successful than others. And then at the very beginning of the movie, Catherine Hepburn moves in because she wants to be an actress, and it turns out that she comes from a lot of money, so, you know, she's sort of just, like, slumming it, hanging out here with them, and a lot of them have very serious concerns, because they're very poor, and don't make a lot of money, and it's the Great Depression, and it's hard to become an actor anyway. And so, the most of the movie is she and Ginger Rogers become roommates, and the two of them are hilariously at each other's throats the whole time. Great dialogue. Mm -hmm. And a lot of chemistry. And so there's one actress who had a part a year ago who has not worked since then and she desperately wants the main role of this guy's new play some producer's new play that he's about to put on yes so she's working to get this role and he of course is very hard to get a hold of no one can get in to see him he's very fickle he's been dating one of the other women in the house this is the only way to get his attention Mm -hmm. so then Catherine Hepburn basically wheedles her way into this situation because ginger rogers hates the girl who's been dating the producer then the producer falls in love with ginger rogers so she starts dating the producer because it's a good opportunity for her financially and Catherine hepburn is like this whole thing is disgusting we don't even like this guy so she goes to the producer's house and makes it so that ginger rogers walks in and thinks that Catherine hepburn is hooking up with the producer yes and in the process of all of this, Catherine Hepburn ends up impressing the producer with her charisma, acting skills, whatever. Well, she had barged into the producer's office yep. earlier to be like, it's so not good that you don't see these people. But yep. then what really happens is her father wants her to fail, so she'll stop trying. So he basically gives the producer a huge check to be like, cast Catherine Hepburn. And so it's a you know a little bit of a subterfuge. She is cast in this play, either way, sight unseen. No one has Mm -hmm. seen her act before. They don't have any idea how she's going to be. And this is the part that the girl who hasn't worked for a year really wants. Yes. And so Catherine Hepburn has the part. She can't act because she's never done it before. And and so things are not going well. Her father, the secret investor, is very happy to hear that things are not going well because he wants her to fail and come home. Meanwhile, the actress who really wanted the part is trying to like keep a stiff upper lip and be happy for Catherine Hepburn that she got this role and so we've gotten to the point where it's opening night of the play and Catherine Hepburn's super nervous and the girl who wanted the part comes to her and very graciously 
gives her a like, you're going to be fine speech. You just need to think about this. It's all going to be good. Everything's going to work out. Catherine Hepburn's like, great. She heads off to go to the play. The girl in this awesome, I loved her walking up the steps scene. <laughs> Pretty dramatic. This is when the movie stops being a comedy and becomes yeah, a drama. It turns on a dime. She's clearly going through it. We, we knew she had financial issues and we knew she really wanted the role, but things are even worse than we thought for her. And she ends up committing suicide. And so they all find out that she has killed herself minutes before Catherine Hepburn is supposed to go on screen. Ginger Rogers is understandably furious about it. She shows up at Catherine Hepburn's green room and mm-hmm. is like, this is what happened. She tells her about it. She's like, you can't possibly go on stage and perform this role that was supposed to be her role. I dare you to do it. She gives her this talking to. And then Catherine Hepburn, the woman who has become her mentor, talks her into going on stage because... The whole play is depending on her. All of these people will lose their jobs. And really, it's what the dead girl would have wanted all along, right? Hmm. (laughs) So Catherine Hepburn does go on stage. But of course, because she's had this very traumatic experience, she is now able to tap into her emotions and make it a very good performance. And so then everyone loves the play. And she gives a speech, a curtain speech at the end, saying like, this was really for this woman that none of you even know about. And she died tonight. And it was all for her. And so the girls from the boarding house all are like crying and appreciate Mm -hmm. her speech. And everyone else is like, what the fuck was that speech about? (laughs) (laughs) And so now the play is going to be very successful. And we sort of loop back around into this parallel scene at the end where a lot of similar things are happening in the final scene, except now she's one of the like old. Yeah, a new girl comes to the boarding house. And they're like, oh, you'll learn, sister. And so things are going to proceed. I thought that Catherine Hepburn and Ginger Rogers were so good together. Mm-hmm. When I watched this movie, I was like, Maddie's going to love this movie. Yeah. It's very dialogue driven. Yep. It is very snappy. Mm-hmm. I was like, this is a movie for Mad Life. And it was. I mean, it was a surprise yeah. tonal twist at the end, to sure. be fair, which was interesting. I don't know how I would have ended this movie myself, but the tone and the dialogue and the I also loved that it was just like all women in the cast, Mm -hmm. which was really fun. You don't see a lot of that. But I had a great time watching it. What did you think of it? I liked it. I did see that this was based on a stage play that was written by Edna Ferber, who also wrote Giant, which of course we covered. So it seems Mm -hmm. like she does very sort of like female forward stories. So uh, I'm all on board for that in a fur, but I, I mean, I liked it. I, I thought the first two thirds were really fun. It was mm-hmm. super exciting to see a baby Lucille Ball in this. She's so precious. Oh my God. We didn't even talk about her. She's great. I did not recognize at first, I think mostly because her hair is very different. Mm-hmm. But like once I realized it was her, if I shut my eyes. Like, and listen. Yeah. Her voice yeah. is Lucille Ball's voice, unsurprisingly. But yeah, it was there. She was great. Yeah. You had to love the woman who wore a cat as a shawl for the whole movie. I did. I loved the cat. I loved the woman who wore the cat. The <laughs> pants wearing woman who just hangs out with a cat. I loved her. All I want is to hang out with my cat. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I did think like, so this is one of two movies which we're going to talk about in this episode, which start fully as comedies and then take a dark turn. And I thought the way they shot the suicide was fascinating. But oh, then like, yeah. At the very end, after Catherine Hepburn has had success, they're like superimposing the papers of her being a hit over the woman's grave. And I was like, I don't know what to make of this. Yeah, same. So it was like a little unclear at the end. I didn't think the tone of the end was perfect. I thought it was an interesting turn. 
Yes. And I thought in the moment it was great because that when the woman goes up to kill herself, it's shot like fucking Hitchcock or something. She's like walking up the stairs <laughs> yeah. with these crazy eyes, and you're like, "What is yeah. she?" And she's do? seeing the lights of people being fans. The the flash bulbs are going off as people are saying, "Oh, you're wonderful!" And then she jumps out of a window. But yeah, the very end of it, you're just sort of like, ah, "How are we? Yeah, supposed to be fans of this? I don't know." <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think people should watch it. I think yeah, it's, it's good. It's fun. But yeah, the end was quite a twist. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I did like Catherine Hepburn when she's being encouraged to go on to the stage and she's all upset about it. She's like, does someone have to die to create an actress? Is that what the theater demands? <laughs> the drama of this. You're like, does it? Is that the point of the movie? Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm mostly here for all of the fun women living together and saying funny things. <laughs> and sniping at each other. Yeah. Okay. That's stage door. Sure is. Okay, that brings us to our also mixed Captain's Courageous. Indeed. Am I doing Captain's Courageous? Yes, I just did stage door. So Captain's Courageous starts off on this super bratty rich kid who's having a sleepover at his house during like spring break or something. He goes to boarding school and he's trying to bribe his little classmates into letting him into this like club that they all belong to that everyone has to agree to let the new Mm -hmm. kid does not want to let the rich kid in because he sucks. And so, yeah, to be fair to to the <laughs> yeah. kids in the his dad is like a tycoon. He's extremely wealthy. And yeah. so when the teachers find out that they this kid tried to bribe the other kid into getting to the club, they're like, you can't do that. It's not acceptable. We're going to punish you. And the way they punish the kids is you can't talk to anyone. Horrifying. The way it's they punish great. the kids is terrible. It's not corporal by any means, but you, they're not allowed to. No one. It's no. psychological. No it's one can talk to you when you're not allowed torture. to talk to anyone outside of the classroom setting. So you could still participate in class. And yeah. the kid is like, this is too much. So he runs home. Another one, the little kids punched him in the face before he leaves because the, the kids all hate him because he sucks. <laughs> and so he and puts he more grime on him. He comes home. He pretends he's really injured. And he pretends that the punishment he received was actually that he'd been locked in a room and like beaten. Oh. And he's so injured. <laughs> yeah he's also and so the father calls the principal and this teacher who the kid is blamed for like abusing him and the principal and the teacher are like so here's what really happened and this is a normal punishment we do and yes it's not great but we didn't lock your kid in a room and beat him and they're like your kid sucks everyone hates him also maybe you should spend more time with him because he's just not getting enough attention and he needs to learn that he can't just bribe his way into things and the dad is surprisingly receptive to all this information from these two educators and so the kid's basically been suspended for the semester and the dad's like, okay, I'll take you with me on my travels and we'll bond and, you know, figure this out. The dad's a single parent too. The mom has died. And so they go on this boat and the kid still sucks. He sucks so bad. And he ends up going overboard mm-hmm. and he's rescued by a guy in a little boat who turns out to be a fisherman. And he takes him back to the main fishing boat and he's like, so you'll take me back to Massachusetts and we'll call my father. And they're like, we cannot do that. We must fish. We'll take you back in a couple months when we're done fishing. And over the course of the movie, he, you know, gets some some lessons in the School of Hard Knocks. He learns the value of labor. He bonds with the guy who rescued him, which is a Portuguese Spencer Tracy, which is mm-hmm. its own thing. He's- and he starts to reform, right? <laughs> he, he learns not to try to take shortcuts and to do the work. And he's becoming a better person. And then at the end of the season, right, whoever gets back first with their fish is going to be able to sell the fish for the most amount of money. 
And so they're a fishing boat and another fishing boat who they've been competing with sort of lightheartedly over the course of the movie are racing back to Gloucester to be able to sell their fish. And something goes wrong. Spencer Tracy ends up getting tied up in the sails. And he's like, basically, my legs have been cut off. So you guys got to let me tie and don't let the kid know. <laughs> it's really intense. It's and really so he rough. dies. And obviously, it's very hard on the kid who really bonded with him. He's like, I want to keep sailing with you. I want to learn to be this great fisherman. This is his new father figure. And they get back to land. His actual mm-hmm. father comes back. And, and he's trying again to really bond with him, to understand what happened, to help him mourn this person he lost. And at first, the kid's like, I don't want to be with you. I want to be with what was Spencer Tracy's character's name. <laughs> Uh, Miguel, or that's such a good question. <laughs> okay, I want to be with right, Manuel. Yeah. I want to be with Manuel, Manuel. but Man- you know the father's very patient and very gentle with him. And then at the end of the film, it seems like they're on a path to really being more bonded as father and son. And he's you know reformed, and that's Captain's courageous. It's so sweet. <laughs> it's not at all what I expected yeah. Captain's courageous to be. If I had any concern at all, I think I probably would have thought it was like a warm movie, yeah. like maybe something um but it was not lovely portrait of um bonding coming of age and like growing as people age and the I talked to tiny about this a couple of days ago but like the non-toxic man was fascinating the the his relationship great but then when he dies and his brothers or his father's trying to bond with him his father basically is like yeah i get like, lonely it's, too it's like okay he's really to just cry. trying yeah, to get on a level with him and the, he, like, respects the kid's boundaries because the kid's on this boat trying to run away and the dad wants to, like, touch him. And the kid's like, don't touch me. And yeah. the dad's like, that's fine. I just want to get on your level. Like, it was so lovely. And they, he shows up. The kids still have a um, – every year, I guess, they have, like, a memorial ceremony for all of the fishermen that have it's died dangerous. over the course of this season because it's a dangerous profession and so then the kid is there to throw a wreath in the water for manuel and the father comes and he yeah, also has a wreath in for the manuel dance. <laughs> i cried at the end of this movie guys it was <laughs> it was pretty good i didn't expect it to be what it was there was weirdness to it to be sure yeah. when we could get into all of those parts but yeah i mean was- you watched this movie before me and you were like get ready for spencer tracy's portuguese accent <laughs> And it's pretty wild, but Spencer Tracy is super good in this movie, unsurprisingly. And yeah, there's just so many touching moments. I love the scene with him talking about his own father dying and, you know, it is setting up what will happen with him. But it was beautiful when he's talking about his dad being in heaven and having the fishing boat waiting for him. Waiting for him to come join him on the fishing boat. And then obviously the scene where he dies is harrowing. Yep. But then like, the part that really got me is there's a portion in the film where the kid is still learning not to suck, where mm-hmm. Spencer Tracy has made a bet with another one of the fishermen. He fishes by hand. Most of the other guys fish by net. Yeah. And he's made a bet with one of the net fishermen that, oh, I can bring in more fish by hand than you guys can with a net. And so he takes the kid out and he's going to teach him how to hand fish. And then he learns that the kid has secretly snared up the guy's fishing net to like sabotage him. Yeah. Once, because he still he hasn't learned his lesson yet. And the other fisherman ends up getting a bunch of like hooks in his arm from that happening. Like it's gnarly. And yeah. Spencer Tracy's like, I'm not going to participate in this competition. So he had bet this beautiful razor that he had purchased when he gives it to the other guy and says, Well, you want whatever. I just couldn't catch enough fish. And mm-hmm. then at the end, when John Carradine gives the little kid back, the razor i was like yeah that's a 
great and satisfying about a movie that is the entire premise of it is like this rich kid sucks and he needs to learn how to not suck and then he does yeah <laughs> and you're like this is fantastic we need more of this <laughs> really good. we need to teach rich people how to not blow yeah and he is like the worst kid. But the other thing too, right, is he's a child. So you're like, I do want yeah. him to get better. Oh, yeah. He's well, and, and he's clearly, the, the issue with him is he's totally amoral, but he's very smart. And that's the problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like he's, yes. he's orchestrating all of the children around him into these horrible situations. He's like a little mafioso <laughs> at the beginning who's like gives a a gift to one of the kids who's at his party so that hopefully one day you'll see fit to do me a gift in return. <laughs> right. <laughs> to like get him to to let him into the club he's like terrifying and the the father when the teachers come to tell him what is going on with the kid (laughs) and he immediately is like oh thank you for telling me this is good to know he says well he certainly fooled me it seems that i have begotten a sort of junior machiavelli (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah it's a problem we were talking earlier too that's another fascinating part of this movie is that the parent is so receptive to the teachers being like yes sucks also you need to do better you hear so many horror stories about teachers trying to tell parents like hey uh there's some problems here and them just getting mad at the teacher what do i pay you for (laughs) if it's on school time it's your responsibility and you're like and instead he's just like wow this is very i'm like sorry to hear this but i will do better (laughs) I like the dad. It's Melvin Douglas. He's a good dad in this one. He is. Good dad and bad dad. He can do it all. He can do it all. The sea stuff looked pretty good. It looked great. I was, I meant to say about that. The sea stuff looked really good. There were several moments where I was like, how did they shoot this? Because a lot of it looks like they're just out at sea. And I'm like, I don't, this is very impressively done. I don't think they were, but it looks really good. I was impressed with that. Oh, also I want to say, since I found this out and told you, mm-hmm. Hattie McDaniel's brother is in this movie. Oh, I, yeah. I learned in this process that Hattie McDaniel's family was a family of actors. He's he, the cook. He's the cook on the ship of fishermen. He has an interesting role. And I think an interesting role too, for like a black actor at this stage where like, yes, he's the cook and yes, mm-hmm. he's sort of speaking in broken English, but he also is fluent in Portuguese and is yes. the one that Spencer Tracy says like, I'm dying. You have to tell the captain and you can't let the kid know. So he has this sort of pivotal role. And I was like, this is pretty good. It was interesting. Yeah. I mean, for pretty 37. good for the era. Yeah. yeah. He clearly is very smart. I did like that he was the only one on the ship other than Spencer Tracy who spoke Portuguese. It was fascinating. Yeah. Captain's courageous. I thought it was pretty good. Yeah. All right. Should we talk about A Star is Born? Yeah. Hit me. Okay, I doubt we have to say too much of this because it's basically the same plot as A Star is Born that we already watched. So it is about a young woman who lives somewhere in the middle of the country and she really loves movies. She's into that. She wants to be an actress. So in talking to her grandmother one day, she decides that she's going to go to Hollywood, see if she can make a go at this. So she takes what little amount of money she can come by and she goes to Hollywood and she gets a she rents a room and she decides I'm just gonna like go to the studios and 
get a job somehow. She's very naive, which is she understandable. Is. So, you know, she like tries to go to central casting and they're like, just so you know, we have 12,000 people on our rolls and we give out like a hundred jobs. So it's not going to happen for you. She ends up happening into a situation where she she makes a friend at her hotel slash boarding house who Mm -hmm. is an assistant director and he's trying to help her get work and at one point all he could manage to come by is a waitressing job but it's at a party full of important industry folks so he's like maybe you can network i don't know and so she (laughs) takes this job and shockingly she does network she (laughs) she she meets this aging actor who's an alcoholic and was very very popular but his last couple of movies haven't done particularly well because his performances are suffering and nobody likes working with him because he is an alcoholic who's very unreliable Mm -hmm. and so they happen to meet each other and he is really taken by her as you know older men always are by ingenue ladies and so he decides like i really like you i'm gonna help you out you're gonna become an actress he demands that his boss give her a screen test for whatever the next movie is that they're planning Mm -hmm. to do and the screen test goes really well they like her she looks good on camera they've got good chemistry they are in this movie together and then things really take off for her people love her in the movie they're like we could take or leave the old guy, but we love this new woman. And so mm-hmm. she becomes very successful very quickly. She's got all kinds of movies coming out. His star, unfortunately, is still on the decline. But they are in love with each other and they get married. And at first, he's trying to make it work. He is like, well, if I can't work, but she's doing well, I'll be her house husband. And I'm going to stay mm-hmm. here and I'm going to cook and clean <laughs> and make it all work out. And then, of course... It can't last. She becomes so successful and he's so depressed. He's trying to not drink, but he ends up starting to drink again. And things are going really poorly for him. She still loves him and wants to make it all work, but it's very difficult. He ends up having to go to rehab. This is all the same stuff of yeah, the other After movie. an incident at an award show. <laughs> yes, after an incident at an award show. He gets out, but everyone around them is basically just sort of like, this relationship's no good. He's a dead weight. You should let him go. And they're telling him at a restaurant, like that he runs into the guy who was the PR guy from the studio that he worked at. Mm -hmm. And he tries to have this nice moment with him. But the PR guy's like, now that we don't work together, I can tell you to your face. I hate you. (laughs) (laughs) You really suck. And I hated working with you. And I hope everything goes poorly for you. And I hope that you, you know, your wife leaves you because she's way better than you. And so he reaches this point of, thinking like he is you know dragging his wife down because she wants to leave to go make their relationship work and she won't be working for a while and so as in the modern movie but in this case it's during code so he kills himself but the way he does it is walking into the ocean never to return (laughs) yeah (laughs) and so then you know she has to move on without him Yes, That's star in, is born. initially she's going to quit, but then her granny comes back and says, don't give up on your dreams. And then she yep. mm-hmm. yeah, That's a star is born. What do you think of it? So, as you know, I did not like Indeed, the 2018 version that we watched. And I love this one. I, it, I, you know, Great. I think it, it made me like the 2018 version even less because I was like, the, the bones are good. The bones are solid. Why <laughs> did you add all this other junk to these bones? <laughs> He really junked up the bones. <laughs> <They> really did. <laughs> I don't know if it's like a question of, you know, 
I'm discovering, I think I really love Frederick March. He was in Smiling Through, which we did in 33. And I really mm-hmm. liked him in that as well. I think he I was excellent you, like, in this. I liked him a lot. I think I mentioned you, this has got all my faves from 33. Janet Gaynor from State Fair. May mm-hmm. Robson's the granny. She's the lady from Lady for a Day, who I did not recognize her until she's all dolled up at the end. And then she looks exactly <laughs> like the dolled up lady for a day. And I was yeah. like, holy shit, that's the same woman. We've got Adolf Manjou again. Yep. <laughs> and I thought it worked much better. So this is another one where I think the first half of this movie is a comedy. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really funny. There's like some hilarious stuff that happens in the first half of this movie. And I think it makes the romance for me work better. Cause I'm like, I get it. Like they're me cute. I thought it was cute. Mm-hmm. I liked it. And then it does take this sort of darker turn, right? Obviously once he falls off the wagon and then the suicide is quite dark as well. Mm-hmm. And I just, I thought it all worked. I really liked it. I watched this movie twice. Wow. You yeah. did really like it. I did. I think it's fun. I mean, we all recall that I don't hate the new A Star is Born nearly as much as you, though I don't think it is a perfect movie. I thought that Frederick March was great. I think he's really funny. The comedy stuff does work really well in this, which is pleasant. I like when there's comedy beats. I think his acting, his like drunk acting is hilarious. (laughs) So, so good. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I thought they were charming. I really liked her assistant director best friend yeah he was lovely and then their relationship was very sweet and it was charming i thought it was charming i didn't think it was anything crazy to write home about but i had a good time another thing i really liked about this movie was he keeps getting replaced by young pemberton (laughs) i just i just think the name young pemberton is very funny (laughs) fair enough No, we're going to give the role to Young Pemberton. Ah, Young Pemberton. Not Young Pemberton. <laughs> I also really liked the when the PR guy tells him off. I thought that was funny. Yeah. <laughs> There's also a whole bit, right, when she's becoming a star and they're like, we have to make you into a star, right? We have to change your name from Ethel Blodgett to Vicky Lester. Esther uh, Blodgett. Oh, sorry. What Esther a name. Blodgett. And then they reveal later on, right, Norman Maine, when they get married, that his real name is Alfred Hinkle. Yeah. Which I also like because Frederick March's real name is Ernest Bickle. <laughs> That's so good. I mean, the whole thing of stage names and I, it's really funny to have her be Esther Blodgett, which is like the most country bumpkin name of all yeah. time. But yeah, no, I think it's really solid. I see why it got carried through into different versions. But yeah, I, like I could go on at length about all the things I like better than the 2018 version which I'm not sure is super productive. I don't think that's very useful, but yes. One thing I also really loved in this movie was after he died, the funeral scene where all of her quote unquote fans are like pawing at her and yelling at her. Yeah. I thought that was quite effective um, too. But I just think, I think it's simplified, but I think that makes everything clear. Their career trajectories are clearer. I think the nature of the relationship is clearer. Her motivations are clearer. Everything is simpler, but it's clearer. And I think it works better. As a result, I will say negative about this movie. I did not notice this until my second time watching it. But there are like a couple people of color in this movie, but they are only in the court scenes. So when they show up, they're on the stand or like in the drunk tank. It's not great. (laughs) It's like, yikes. That's a bit of a yikes. That's bad. Not great. But yeah, Frederick March. He's great. Young Pemberton. Young Pemberton. (laughs) 
Shall we talk about the life of Emile Zola? Sure. So this is a biopic. It is about French writer Emile Zola. We start when he's a young man hanging out with his roommate. Paul Cezanne. Cezanne. I didn't. <laughs> Wild. And they're poor. They're young. They're artists. Mm-hmm. This is before he's had any success with his writing. His fiance comes in and is like, I got you a job at a publisher. And he goes and he gets that job, but he's still writing his rabble rousing pieces and he loses the job because he won't. He won't stop writing his rabble rousing pieces. People no. need to know the truth. Exactly. And so he ends up writing his first successful book, Nana, which is about the life of a prostitute, an inside look into what's happened to this woman. And he becomes very successful. I love the scene where he goes in and gets his, his check. Yes. Well, and the scene that precedes it, but we'll talk about all yes. that. And they just show him becoming more and more successful. He ends up getting kind of fat and, and lazy and mm-hmm. contented. Rich. Rich. Similar thematic things happening, honestly, in Paul's other piece this mm-hmm. year. He has a very interesting confrontation, not like a aggressive confrontation, but with Suzanne towards the end of their friendship where they're having dinner and he's like, let me show you all the stuff I've bought. Look at this vase. Look at this painting. Look at this thing. And Suzanne's like, you're not my friend anymore. I, I, I've got to go. I've never gotten rich on purpose. I need to live the life of an artist. And I love their breakup scene. Where it was he's like, so Will good. you write? And he's like, no, no. but I'll remember. And I was like, oh, that's heartbreaking. <laughs> oh my God. So that's happening. And then the Dreyfus affair happens also. Yep. And so I don't know if most people know what the Dreyfus affair People probably need a stage. quick refresher. But basically the French army, and this is taking place in like the late 19th century. France has been having conflict with the Prussians and they find out that someone has been giving information to the Germans, essentially. Mm-hmm. There's a spy. A spy. And so they just decide it's this Jewish guy because he's they Jewish. Look at a list of names of people who could have had the information. Yes. See that one of them is Jewish and go, there he is. That's, That's the guy. Because there's a lot of anti-Semitism happening in France at the time. And so basically they railroad this guy. They just decide he's guilty. They have this sham trial. They send him away to Devil's Island in South America. And his wife is working to try to get someone to be like, hey, he didn't do this. We need to bring things to light. And over the course of this happening, it's determined that there was this other guy who clearly did it. (laughs) Um, And the army also has a sham trial where they prove him innocent, right? Because the army can't be wrong. They can't be embarrassed. They have to uphold the honor of the army. And she gets Mm -hmm. information that indicates that this is what happened. And so she goes to Zola and she's like, please, I need you to use your voice. You're the great rabble rouser of France. Mm -hmm. And at first he's like, no, I'm about to join the academy. He's about (laughs) to become one of the immortals. The immortals. Yes. I'm I'm so the institution I can't. But then he decides that he reads the evidence and he's like, okay. And he writes, Jacuse. Jacuse. <laughs> One of the most famous newspaper editorials of all time. Where he accuses the French army and government of being corrupt. And then they put him on trial for libel. libel. I'm always like slander is spoken. Libel yep. For libel. And he is also convicted in a, a sham trial where mm-hmm. it's it's so infuriating. The army's like, oh, he can't yeah. testify. Oh, no, you can't see that document. No, you have to trust us because we're the army. And the judge is like, well, of course. Yeah. Of course we have to trust. Uh-huh. <laughs> anyway, he ends up not going to prison. He flees to exile in England. So that he can continue writing about it. Yes, so he can continue writing about it. And then eventually the military, oh, uh, a new government official is like, you guys, this was bad. 
this clearly this was forged a forged letter you guys made all this up nah and so he's able to come back they release Dreyfus from prison he reunites with his wife but before Zola can go and meet Dreyfus and be like yeah we did it he dies of carbon monoxide poisoning because and they've threaded this through the entire movie he gets chills and he likes to have the windows closed and the fire burning hot (laughs) yes and it gets him in the end Yes. Although, interestingly, there's all sorts of theories of that he was murdered. That he was murdered. Of course. That a chimney sweep plugged up his chimney. He sweeps. Yes. And then we see his funeral. And that's the life of Emile Zola. What do you think? I liked it a lot. I mean, for a thing that is could have been very dry, it is a biopic about a writer. <laughs> there's like a biopic actually, in 1937. Yes. <laughs> There's a lot of interesting stuff going on. And you and I both love courtroom dramas. And a large portion of this Mm -hmm. is a courtroom drama when we get into the Dreyfus affair. And I mean, he's a very interesting person. The stuff that he's writing and like causing all of these quakes throughout French society are very interesting. And the idea of, again, back to our good earth themes with Paul Muni, the idea of like success and power and money sort of corrupting what was good about him is very interesting. And I feel like that happens with famous artists a lot. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So he becomes successful and he loses whatever edge he had. And so then his confrontation with Cezanne in his mind when he finally you know, decides like, I have to get back to my roots. I I have to make a stand because somebody has to do it and it might as well be me. I think it's really compelling. I liked that a lot. And then the trial is good. The, I mean, good in the sense that like, it's so incredibly frustrating. Yes. Perfect. It's well done. Yes. It's well done. (laughs) It was interesting because they sort of changed the end a little bit to wrap it up a little more nicely than what happened in reality, which Mm -hmm. I thought was intriguing because in the version, in the movie version, which is, I guess, is what you would expect, the Hollywood version, the French government is like, we were wrong. We're so sorry, Dreyfus. Please come to this ceremony where we honor you and bring you back into the military. What really what happened was they had him sign basically a confession saying he did it, but that he would then be pardoned. And he was mm-hmm. like, well, if I will get out of prison, then yes, I will say that I did it. And so they, it wasn't until many years later that they were like, actually... <laughs> He was innocent. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it it plays in a movie way at the end to be like, we've achieved our goal. Mm. And I I actually liked that they like set up that he would die from carbon monoxide poisoning. (laughs) At the beginning. (laughs) At the beginning and throughout. Yeah. (laughs) I was like, all right. I can't fault the construction of the movie. It's all coming together. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but Paul Muni was great. He gives very compelling speeches. I loved him reading his Jacques letter. I loved his speeches in the courthouse. And I just thought it it worked. What did you think? I liked it a lot, too. I was also like, ooh, a biopic. Ooh, I was worried. Oh, my gosh. But yeah. it's interesting, right? Because you have, like, the biopic elements, and then you have the Dreyfus affair elements. And you're like, should you just make a movie about the Dreyfus affair? Do we need the other stuff? But I don't know. I think it more or less works. And that theme of, like, he gets fat and contented and you know he no longer cares i think it was effective and that's an important message as well and that's great too because then you can skip the good earth and you can just watch the life of a meals just watch the life of meals a lot you'll get all the things you needed to know yeah, from it it's the same it's the same themes i thought the guy who played dreyfus was also very good there's this very hard scene um when he's initially arrested where his wife comes to the jail before he's set to south america that was like really beautiful. It was really nice. And they wouldn't let them touch each other. Yeah. 
And he's oh. like, don't make, she's like, I, I won't leave until I can hug my husband. And he's like, don't make it harder for me. I love you. Oh, like, This is sad. <laughs> It was really sad. It was really sad. I thought that guy was quite good. Like I said, I love the scene when Cezanne is last with Zola and Zola's like, look at all this stuff I bought. Isn't this cool? Isn't it cool that I'm really rich now? Oh my God. Mm -hmm. And I, the, the, just the, will you write? No. No, but I'll remember. remember. Oh, Cezanne. He must've been proud of him when he did the Shakyu's stuff. I think he came around. But yeah, can we talk about when he's first becoming successful? Because you mentioned the scene when he comes to ask for money and he gets the check, Mm -hmm. which I did love. But I also want to talk about the earlier scene when you're seeing that he's getting successful because there is this couple in the bookstore buying the books and the man secretly gets some money to the bookseller and sneaks a copy of Nana into his jacket because he doesn't want anyone to know he's buying it. And then his wife's like, oh, I also wanted a copy of Nana. And he's like, you can't read that trash. (laughs) That's that's smut. And so they leave and she's forgotten her umbrella and she comes back for it. And she's like, send me a copy of Nana to my house. (laughs) It's like you really get a sense of what type of book it is and why Mm -hmm. like everybody is really bubbling about it. But then, yeah, talk about the scene when he comes. Yeah, so he he's coming into the the bookseller to ask for some cash. That's great too because it's raining really heavily, and he has this like completely broken umbrella. And this umbrella seller's like, "Oh, would you like to buy a new umbrella?" He's like, "Oh no, and give up my umbrella that I love, my yeah. that I fight with." Yeah. And then we realize that it's not just him being kind of like Suzanne. Like I appreciate the struggle, but he just doesn't have the money. And so he goes into the bookseller. And he's like, "Could I get an advance of like a few francs to yeah. you know carry me over?" And they're like, "Well, we've been meaning to tell you." I just actually just wrote you this letter from the first set of sales. So he's reading the letter and it's a check for 18,000 francs, yeah. which must have been so much the, money. The letter says Nana sells 36,000 copies in first like three days or something. Yeah. Enclosed is a check for 18,000 francs. And he's like there to ask for 10. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it must like, be so much money. A wild amount of money. Yeah. But that's one of the scenes, too, where, like, Paul just makes choices throughout the movie that I really love, like, small choices. Like, obviously, like, the big speeches are great, but he's great in that scene. There's a scene where, again, when he's gotten big and he's not paying attention to what's happening around him, I think there's some protests about Dreyfus and he's buying lobsters for Mm -hmm. his dinner. Yeah. And a bunch of his, like, rich friends come by and he's like, smell this lobster. (laughs) (laughs) Smell the lobster. It's really weird. Yeah. The other thing I liked about this movie was I feel like it's like what we talked about in Z. Fascists are always the same exact person and it's wild. Yeah, they never change because fascism always works exactly the same way. The entire premise of it is I will make it so that there are no facts because then whatever I say is the truth. And that's just what they do. They just spew nonsense until you can be like, well, this is the truth. And you're like, yeah, okay. When they, you say so. when they first go in to talk to like the general about Zola, he's like, I never read books. And you're like, classic fashion. Classic. Everything they do is for the honor of the army, right? Mm-hmm. That's the whole purpose. And then I also was thinking about how at the end of Z, when they're confronting all the military officials and they're like, I'd kill myself. And then the military official, they kind of yes. just kill himself. Yes. And I'm like, yes. these people are cowards. Uh-huh. cowards. But it's just so interesting because it's also them like buying – their own nonsense like it's one thing for there to be a cover-up of something you've done right like maybe you hastily railroaded this guy because you were actually under the impression that he did it but new evidence has come to light and you're like oh it probably doesn't look very good if we say we were wrong and so i can imagine a scenario where 
they push down the evidence that he was not guilty and they don't prosecute the guy who really did it for this. But you'd think they would then want to get rid of him another way since he's literally a spy. (laughs) And instead, the step that they take is to like build him up into a hero and prove that he's innocent and bring him in on all of this. And he's like there at the trial with them being like, we're all together, right? And you're like, he's literally a spy. (laughs) The trial is incredible. It's 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 so so infuriating. Yes. I mean, the judge, my God, the judge. It's all, it's all, it's all Z. It's all judgment at Nuremberg Mm -hmm. vibes. Mm -hmm. It's really good. Except there's a good judge in judgment. Well, I'm saying not, not Spencer Tracy judge, but the judges that they're judging. Oh, those judges. Yes, absolutely. He is one of those judges. (laughs) He's one of those judges. We're like, we have to uphold the system. We can't criticize the government. Yeah. It's just so extraordinarily frustrating all the things and it's like he he won't compel any of the generals to testify he Mm -hmm. can't make them say anything but then every once in a while the generals will come and be like so i do want to say one thing and it's that i have evidence that he's actually guilty but i i can't bring the evidence because it would be not in the interest of national security and the judge is like okay sounds right (laughs) And the, the the defense attorney is like, can I ask him any questions? And the judge is like, no. no. <laughs> then the attorney is like, why are they allowed to testify in these kinds of circumstances? But I can't compel it and I can't question them. It's crazy. It's really frustrating. Yeah. One critique I've heard of this movie is that they don't make it sufficiently clear that the anti-Semitism is at the heart of the railroading of Dreyfus. They don't hammer it home a lot, but it's not like they're not explicit about it. When they pick him, they highlight the word There's Jew. There's a scene where someone <laughs> underlines with his finger the word Jew. No, that's that was my thought as well. I had, Well, I had a couple of thoughts about it. One, like, A, how well known was the Dreyfus Affair in 1937? And so maybe part of the yeah. issue is people have forgotten it. And so, like, maybe you're a person in 1937 and you're like, of course. Yes. Mm-hmm, maybe. Sentence. I get it. And then, yes, there is the scene where they literally underline that he's a Jew. Yeah. I so felt like I they were... They were clear about why they chose the guy. They could have made the characters say more anti-Semitic things, I guess. But I don't know how much more that would have done for you. Yeah. And then I just think this is a fascinating movie to have come out in 1937, as you're probably getting news articles about the Nazis and all the stuff that they're promoting. And it's very timely. It's pretty timely. But as we know, stories about fascism are always timely because that shit just won't go away. They're the, they're the same person. It's so crazy. <laughs> it's really wild. I never read books. Okay. I also, I want to mention, I loved the scene. I mean, it was also frustrating and horrible, but I loved the scene when they bring him in to accuse him and he doesn't know why he's there. He thinks he's just there to see his bosses or whatever. And the the guy's like, you know, I really need to write a memo, but my person who takes dictation isn't here. Do you mind writing down a note for me? And he has him like write out a confession letter, basically. (laughs) Like, this is insane. It's so clumsy and ridiculous. They don't even for a moment bring him in and ask him questions about No, and everything he does is a sign of his guilt. The fact that he seems to have no idea what's going on makes him guilty. The, yeah. Like it's it's The fact that he says he didn't do it means that he did do it. The fact yes. that he you know, it's just like totally ridiculous. The fact that his wife is like search the house, you won't find anything. That's evidence that yeah. <laughs> he's guilty. Right. Ay ay ay. I liked it. I think it's good. 
Agreed. So, so does this mean that the Oscars didn't get it wrong? Not to jump ahead, but. Well, no, I think we're there. I think we're there at our what should have won. Did the Oscars get it wrong discussion? You know, I gave two knows I wouldn't been mad a star is born in this one I think the points for a star is born right is it does have cultural impact because they have remade it three times but I can't say they got it wrong again I think life of Emile Zola is really timely at this stage in history I think it's probably an important film to select I think Paul is excellent yeah I don't have a problem with it I don't have a problem with it either I think this is a movie that it would be good for more people to watch I think it's politically relevant and also entertaining what more do you want right i think the only other ringer which we have talked about it is snow white yes so the conversation about snow white is clearly there is no more culturally relevant film of 1937 i think we Mm -hmm. can all agree it is culturally relevant and also very important to film history yes at the very least you and I, I think, could agree. It would have been nice for it to be nominated for Best Picture. Yes, it's interesting that the Academy is already discounting animation. <laughs> they were like, this is an achievement, but not, yeah. you know, it's they for children. Like, what an interesting thing you did. I don't know what to make of it, but good job, I guess. Yeah. So yeah, it would have been nice to see a little bit more recognition for it. I wouldn't be mad if it had been nominated and won Best Picture. Me neither. I think that would have been appropriate. Yeah. I can't be mad at Emile Zola either. So sort of along those lines, right? If we could only have five nominees, is the five that we ended up with our top nominees? Or would you slot one out for Snow White? I mean, in a a dream world where we're choosing, I got to have Snow White in here somewhere. Mm -hmm. So maybe I put it in for The Awful Truth, which is a fun movie, but probably not that important I think compared to Captain's Courageous and Stage Door, The Awful Truth is doing a little less, but it's good. It's fun. I would tell people they should watch all five of these movies, plus Snow White, if you haven't seen it. (laughs) But I think all of these movies have something interesting going for them. Mm -hmm. But I think we got pretty close with these five. I'm happy with these five nominees. I like them all. I liked them all. So Should we go to Jake Gyllenhaal Corner? Tippy tippy tap our toes down to Jake Gyllenhaal Corner and say, should he have been nominated for an Oscar this year? Obviously not. He was not alive. But mm-hmm. in an alternate reality where Jake Gyllenhaal is always alive and never dead and could be nominated in any year, is there a role for him in one of these movies? And I guess we can include the first five, too, if we want. But that's a lot. Too. Sure. Sure, sure, sure. So there are options. So many options. Remember, we have to take someone out. That's the thing. That's always the issue with Jake Gyllenhaal slotting him into things. Because there are roles he could play, obviously. But I don't think that you want to take Frederick March out of A Star is Born. I don't know that we want to take Paul Muni out of The Life of Emile Zola. Do we want to lose Spencer Tracy from Captain's You can't lose Spencer Tracy. Plus, I'm not asking any modern actor to go do that Portuguese accent that he was doing. Maybe he wouldn't be Portuguese. (laughs) Maybe he'd just be from Boston. I think he's Portuguese in the book. I think that's why they did that. (laughs) There's not really part for him in Stage Door. Unless he's Adolf Manjou. Yeah, but like that guy sucks. So... (laughs) (laughs) Is there anything for him to do in any of our loser movies that's a great question not putting him in an old chicago because it sucks 
there's no role in 100 men and a girl that would be interesting i'm certainly not putting him in the good earth (laughs) no 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 we're gonna make any changes we're gonna make improvements He could be in Dead End. He could be either the love interest or Humphrey Bogart. Yes. He could. Is that a great role for him in either case? I mean, there's, to be honest... I feel like the problem is the best roles this year... Are already really well done, so there's no reason to swap him out. Yeah. So, it seems like no. No movies for you, Jake. Sorry, Jake. It's just... You'll get him next time. Things are not good enough for you, or... They're too perfect. Okay, so conclusions. Do you see yourself coming back to any of these movies? You've already gone back to one of them. I rewatched A Star is Born. That feels very like a rainy day, just put it on in the background kind of thing. Especially, again, the first half, I think, is a very successful comedy. I Mm -hmm. think it's very funny. I'd watch The Awful Truth again. That's an easy one to just be like, yeah, it could be fun. Why not? There's a number of these. Like, Captain's Courageous is great. Mm-hmm. I could rewatch that at some point in my life. I don't know if like I really super want to watch rewatch the life of Emil Zola, but I could. I'd yeah, I mean that's the it. thing. It's very well done, but it's not just a fun light time to put on. No. It's like you know, I don't usually sit down and watch a biopic. Yeah, but you know what? One day we will finish this project, and I will not see Paul regularly anymore. And, and you'll miss myself, him. Ugh, I want to see some Paul. I've watched I Am a Fugitive from a Chain Gang a bunch of times. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm I'm watching I'm a Fugitive from a Chain Gang first when we're doing the rewatching, but there could come a day when the life of Emile Zola is getting put in the rotation. Yeah. I would rewatch Stage Door, and then I I agree with all of your other things. Mm -hmm. There was fun stuff this year. There really was. We were hoping for a good time when we saw that all of these movies were so well-reviewed. And while we did not universally love all of them, I think we had a fairly good time. There were some good movies here. Some strong stuff. Oh, and I'd rewatch Snow White. And oh, works. well, yeah, sure. And, like, if anybody has 85 minutes to spare, you can watch Snow White. It's not really, like, yeah. a, a big hardship. Yeah. So, angry white guys, we got to get into our patterns. There's some angry little white boys. <laughs> the dead end kids. To be fair, he's, they're angry because it's the Great Depression and they're poor and they don't seem well, to really have anyone little, to take care this of This little rich I'd be angry kid. too if some little rich kid was wandering around rubbing his money in my face. Fair no, enough. I mean the rich kid in Captain's Courageous. Oh, he's, he's angry. He's a little, he's a little, he sucks. He sucks, sucks. But he, again, as we have said, probably not enough times, but we have said he is a child. <laughs> He's a child and he learns and grows and it's okay. (laughs) Yes. I only say that because they do such a good job establishing how much this Yeah, you really hate him. You really hate the kid at the top. So it makes it all better when it comes around at the end. Yeah. Biopics. We have one and Mm -hmm. it's a winner. Life of Zilla. A good biopic? A biopic we liked? What are the odds? And then original ideas checking in. We have... A Star is Born is original. Mm-hmm. And in old Chicago, even though they pretended it wasn't, is indeed original. Everything so, else, no. Two out of ten. Whatever. Yeah, Every time we do this, I'm more like, eh, does it really matter? I don't know. <laughs> no, no, no. So have we learned anything to circle back? I mean, they love a biopic. They do. Again, we... I think we talked about this in the Wizard of Oz series, right? Which is only two years later where they're like, family films? Nah. 
Well, at least they nominated for kids. The Wizard of Oz. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, these are the sort of things where they're not appreciating the fact that these family films are so crucially groundbreaking. They're just sort of like, eh, okay, somebody made an animated movie and you're like, did you know that they made an animated movie? It's a feature length <laughs> film? All these things before were like 10 minutes long. It's exactly. so much work. Yeah. Um, did technologies yeah they they overlook family films they like biopics but honestly this is a pretty fun collection of different tones and styles of movies it doesn't the 30s are are good in that sense they don't feel like the 50s when everything feels really similar as we said in 33 they're sort of still figuring out what movies are and there's little Mm -hmm. bits of that that filter into this with like a hundred men and a girl and you're like how did this become a movie i don't know (laughs) I think it's not quite as fun as 33 because we are postcode, but yes. still, still interesting. Mm-hmm. All righty. Any final thoughts? No. I, the 30s have been pretty good to us so far. Yeah, I think we're starting surprising. to develop some feelings about the various decades, and some of them have been surprising and some of them have been not. And I think the 30s have been a surprisingly positive decade for us so far, mm-hmm. despite Gone with the Wind. Yes. <laughs> and some, you know questionable racial issues throughout but. yeah but the questionable racial issues period of the hollywood history is more of the history than the not questionable yes, that's racial true. issues. i mean we're kind of to be fair still in it yes that's fair that's fair that's fair uh, all right if you don't have any other closing thoughts what are we talking about next time next time we're talking about the 46th academy awards or the films of 1973 Woo. the nominees this year were American Graffiti, Cries and Whispers, The Exorcist, The Sting, and A Touch of Class. I'm excited to be back in the 70s. In my head, I feel like I've watched American Graffiti, but I don't remember it at all. Okay. So we'll see if it feels familiar when I get to it or not. But other than that, I have seen none of these movies. You haven't seen The Sting? No. Wow. I know. Pretty exciting. <laughs> That's the only one I've seen. I've yeah. just seen The Sting. So I'm excited to watch The Exorcist, if I'm being honest. Me too. Yeah. And I'm excited to find out what cries and whispers and a touch of class are, because those don't sound familiar They're to a me total at mystery. all. <laughs> all right. Well, that is exciting. Can't wait to get to it next time. But in the meantime, if you have comments, questions, or concerns, reach out to us at oscarswrongpod at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Letterboxd at Oscars Wrong Pod. Check out our website, OscarsWrongPod.com. And if you are enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend, leave us a review, and subscribe. New episodes come out every other Friday at 6 o'clock Eastern, wherever you get your podcasts. Bye.